I want to start this morning with just a, a moment of group confession. How many of you, be honest, you look back on a decision in your life that in the moment made complete sense, but after you acted on the decision, maybe immediately or over time, you came to realize it was a bad decision? How many of you? All right, good. And the rest of you are in denial. So, uh, you, we look back on ourselves and we look back at that situation and we ask ourselves this question, what was I thinking? And many of you, you're like me. You had people in your life, they were, they were trying to wave you off and warn you off. Maybe it was several people, but no matter what they said or what they pleaded, uh, you were de- de- determined to do what you had determined to do. And then sometime after, you realized, too late, I was wrong, I should have listened, they were right. And here's something else we all share in common. We don't want to experience that again. We, 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 just, we don't want any more regret in our lives. I don't want any in mine. And as a man, as a pastor who loves you, I don't want any, any, any more in yours, uh, either for your sake and not just for your sake, but also because we never just hurt ourselves, do we? We inevitably hurt the people around us. And maybe the worst thing is that we hurt the next generation. So today, today we're going to learn how to avoid that. We're going to look at someone and someone's story of someone you've likely never, never heard of. And his, he was a king and his name was Zedekiah. Now, if you're just joining us today, just as a heads up, you're coming into about two-thirds of the movie, okay? We're in the sixth part of a nine-part, yes, nine-part series. And if you're someone or you know someone who has struggled uh, what we call the Bible, like how this all fits together and how, uh, you know, how does it uh, uh, relevant to my day-to-day life and what do we learn about God and why is it that God seems to have a split personality and how does this all connect and piece together, then I would strongly encourage you just to get on newlifewichita.com. You can watch, you can listen, go back and catch up because today we're moving forward in this very important series of talks. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about King David and how passionate his heart was through his entire life. But after King David, everything went downhill for the kings. His son Solomon, who succeeded David, he only had a partial heart for God, and as a result of David's grandson after Solomon, the nation of Israel was split into what was referred to as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern, uh, the northern kingdom retained the name Israel. The southern king, kingdom was, was referred to as Judah. And in our short time together, we're going to look at that period of history that goes all the way to the prophet Malachi or Malachi, depending on where you're from. And so several hundred years of history. And the reason that we're going to focus on this one specific king is because, because King Zedekiah, he perfectly characterizes this entire period of history in the nation of Israel until there's what's referred to as the 400 years of silence or the 400 silent years. So the kingdom is split north and south, and God begins to send prophet after prophet into the northern and the southern kingdoms to warn the kings, saying, listen, you need to repent. You need to rule the nation as I have told you to rule it, the way I've designed you. I'm God. You're simply the king. And from time to time, a good king would crop up in the north or in the south, and they would lead the people to repent and quit worshiping other gods and fake gods and idols, and they would restore a commitment to the law in those nations. But more often than not, it was an evil king. And over and over through this period of Israel's history, you read these words. And King so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord. He would not tear down the high places. He would not return the people to the law. And King so-and-so did evil in the sight 
of the Lord. Well, several generations went by, and finally, God had had it with the northern kingdom, and he, followed, he allowed the Assyrians to come down from the north and destroy the northern kingdom. They carted off thousands and thousands of Jewish people and all these expensive things, and, and they carted these Jewish people into other parts of the Assyrian empire. They basically destroyed the top half of the nation of Israel. And you would think everybody in the south would go, wow, yes, sir, God, whatever you want. We don't want that to happen to us. But even though they saw what happened to their brothers and sisters in the north, the people in the southern kingdom, they just continued to rebel. And the kings continued to be bad kings. So in about 600 BC, about 100 years after the fall of the northern kingdom, and it was wiped out, Babylon comes down, he invades the southern kingdom, and King Nebuchadnezzar, he carts off lots of valuable things, he sets up a Jewish person who is part of the, the, uh, the lineage of kings to be the king, and basically says, you're to rule as if you were me. In other words, you can continue to be a sovereign, independent state, but behave, and send me taxes, and when I need your help, you send help. Well, as time progressed, these Jewish kings, they just continued to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar, and that's where our story picks up. So Nebuchadnezzar, he comes down one more time, and he says, look, I'm giving you one more chance, and he establishes Zedekiah to be the king of Israel, and then he goes back to Babylon to be able to run his affairs in that part of the world. So we're going to be looking in Second Chronicles chapter 36, and here's how this story begins with verse 11. Zedekiah was 21. Imagine that. He was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. He, and here it is, did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. And he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. See, in this whole period, the kings would rule and then God would speak to the kings through these prophets. And that's why in this part of the Bible, you have First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel. So it's lots of history followed by all of these prophets. And they were writing and speaking to the kings. That's how all these parts of the Bible go together. Well, this particular prophet that spoke to Zedekiah was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, he would come to him and say, listen, you've got one more shot. If you just repent, if you just turn back to God, if you just return the people to following God, look, you've just got one more shot. If you'll do that, God will deliver you. He'll deliver you from King Nebuchadnezzar, and he will reestablish the nation that God wants the nation, has always wanted it to be. And King Zedekiah would say, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to hear about it. And Jeremiah would just come back again and again and again. And finally, Zedekiah said, look, lock this guy up. I'm sick and tired of hearing it. Now just pause for a moment. Isn't that so common to us? That we've all had that person in our life, and they see us headed towards pain. They see us headed towards a bad decision, and they warn us, and they warn us, and they warn us, and we just block them out. We just block them out, and, and it's just like, I, we just avoid them. I don't want to hear it. Well, they took Jeremiah, and they lock him up in the courtyard. But the problem is, like, he's on a mission from God. So even locked up in the courtyard, they haven't gagged him. He's yelling, repent, 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 and all these people are walking by. You've got to repent, because turn to God. Otherwise, the Babylons, he's going to let them come in, and they're going to destroy us. So Zedekiah brings Jeremiah in again. He says, listen, I'm telling you, shut up. I don't want to hear it anymore. 
Jeremiah says, King, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the clock is ticking. You only have a little more time to turn this thing around. And if you don't, God is going to come down on you. He's going to come down on you hard. So Zedekiah has Jeremiah thrown into a cistern, so basically a well, and covers it up. So people are still walking by, and they hear, it's like, what that sound? He just won't shut up because he knows it's just a matter of time before Zedekiah's sin and the sin of the people is going to cause God to turn on the people that he loves. And then Zedekiah makes it worse. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had, make him, had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked. He hardened his heart. He would not turn to the Lord his God, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people, they became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent, them, sent word to them through messengers again and again. Why? Because he had pity. He had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. It's, just, it's incredible that throughout this entire period of Israel's history, even though they turned against God over and over and over again, throughout this whole period, he refers to them as his people, and he had pity on them. Why? Because God is God whose love is unchanging. And he is a God that keeps his promises. And and you know what Zedekiah, the king, did that we can all relate to? God, thanks. Thanks for the input, but I'm going to live my life. I'm going to live my life the way I want. I'm going to live my relationships my way, my money my way, my dating life my way, my sex life my way, my family my way, my career my way. It's my life, my choice, my decision. God, thank you for the input, but just mind your own business and don't get in my way. Like right now, I'm just not going to do your deal. And as I think about my life, and as you think about your life, isn't it amazing what kind of stupid decisions we can make in that place in our life? I mean, just think back to the biggest, dumbest decision you've made in your life. Decisions that you've made where you said, God, I know your will. Thanks for your input. I've got this. I'm going to run my own life. And you look back and you, again, you think, what was I thinking? Because when the created ignores and disregards the creator, we make dumb, self-destructive decisions. And that's exactly what happened to Zedekiah. He did what we have done. God, I don't need you to rule and reign. I'll be my own boss. And how dumb that was. Here's another verse that we can all relate to. And we're going to come back to this. It's in verse 15. God sent word to them through his messengers again and again, but they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets. Until finally, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. Don't miss this. We're introduced to a facet of God's personality that had been there all along, and it's still there today. 
God sent warning after warning after warning. He says, I love you, I love you, I love you. Please turn around, please trust me. You've bought into self-destructive behavior. You're on a path, you're moving into a direction that if you don't turn around, if you don't turn back, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be pain. And I've sent messages and texts and emails and registered mail and preachers and your husband and your wife and friends and everybody has warned you and the red flags are waving and I'm telling you, you're headed to a line that you cannot see and one Once you cross that line, it's going to be too late to go back. You're moving towards a point where there is no remedy. There's nothing left for me to do but to just just let you run into that wall, to go off that cliff, to find yourself enslaved, to experience the full consequences of your decision because I love you. Because for your sake, you need to turn back to me, but the warnings are over. You're past the point of no return. See you on the other side. Jeremiah 52, verse 4. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He is ticked. They camped outside the city. They built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege for two years until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe, there was nothing. There was no food for anyone to eat. And then this is us again. Zedekiah suddenly is like, wow, I'm in big trouble. I have a problem. So what does he do? Um, Where's that Jeremiah guy? I got to get a message to God. Okay, because I'm in trouble. And I need God. Ever do that? You ever find yourself in a mess of your own making? Suddenly you've got a big problem that you created primarily, and now on this side of the decision, suddenly, suddenly we want God's input and his intervention in our life. And the the amazing thing is the guy, this king, he doesn't even have the guts to go and meet Jeremiah face to face. He says, I need to get a message to God. So he calls in a priest to do that. And he sends him to Jeremiah. And the the priest says, inquire now, Jeremiah, of the Lord for us. Because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. And Jeremiah is going, really? Surprise. Like, serious. I have been warning all of you for two years that if you didn't change and turn around and shape up, it's over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inquire of the Lord. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us, as in times past, so that Nebuchadnezzar will withdraw from us. You know, Jeremiah, like when Moses and plagues and the time the Amalekites were attacking, this, the army woke up one morning, they were all dead. Like, get God to do one of those for us. And Jeremiah says, it's, it's too late. There was a time when the God of Israel would have bailed you out, but, but you hardened your heart. You said no over and over and over And because you refuse to listen to the warnings and the promptings and the signals and the signs and the red flags, Zedekiah, it's it's over. You're too late. And you can read this for yourself. He says, Zedekiah, here's the best thing you can do. Sit on your throne, open the gates, and let Nebuchadnezzar and his army in. Because if you try to flee, God is saying to you today, it will not go well for you you will suffer greatly from that decision. And here's what Zedekiah did, chapter 52, verse 7. Then the city wall was broken through, the whole army floods in, then they, the king and his family, 
left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's gate, even though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, so they disobeyed God once again, and they fled towards Arabah, which is towards Egypt. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him on the plains of Jericho. All of his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. And then he was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then he also kills the officials of Judah before his eyes. And then, so that seeing his families and friends slaughtered would be the last thing he ever saw in his life, he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and then took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison until the day of his death. A high price to pay. He had been warned and warned and warned and warned, and God finally said, O Israel, O Zedekiah, as much as I love you, knowing that one day there will be a great king who sits on the throne, I am willing to go to great lengths to discipline you, to allow you to experience the consequences of your defiance and rebellion. If that's what it takes to win your heart, and win your affection, and to regain your attention and your obedience. Back to Second Chronicles verse uh, 36, verse 39. Then they set fire. They set fire to God's temple. They broke down the walls of Jerusalem and the city that God loved. They burned all the palaces and they destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile, into Babylon, the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the words of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. See, an interesting thing had happened. Before the attack, God had showed up to Jeremiah. We don't know when this happened, but he says, Jeremiah, the Babylonians are coming, and they're going to mow down this city, and there will be no more Israel. But I am a covenant-keeping God, and 70 years will pass with no Israel, no king, no people, but at the end of the 70th year, I'm going to bring those that have learned their lessons, those who have finally said, the Lord, he is God, I'm going to bring them back from captivity to this land, and I will reestablish my nation, because regardless of their rebellion, I am a God whose love never changes, and I am a God who keeps his promises. And sure enough, 70 years later, this is what the Old Testament, this part of the Old Testament, how it ends. In verse 22, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so Babylon had been overtaken, Persia's in power now, they're the dominant world force, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. And a pagan king, moved by God, initiates the building program that, in, that ultimately opened the door for the remnant to go back to the land that God had promised to Abraham and reestablish the name, uh, reestablish is the nation of Israel. And a, a man named Zerubbabel 
yes, for us, funny name. He went in, he re- rebuilt the temple, the prophet Ezra. He goes and he speaks and he teaches the people. Nehemiah, he comes along, he re- rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem because God, even though he had been insulted and rebelled against and ignored and embarrassed internationally again and again and again, was a God who was going to keep his promises. And if you are a Christian, if you are a Jesus follower, this is part of your story. What began with the nation became something for the entire world. And we're going to talk about that next week. And there's so many lessons in this, but I just want to focus on one. And this is sensitive. That God, because he is a loving heavenly father, disciplines his disobedient children. Not to pay them back, but to win them back. Because he's tenaciously committed to a relationship with those who consider him their God and who call him Father God. And even those of us who in childhood put our faith in him, that God disciplines those he loves. That even though we might mock God, that we might mock the messengers of God, despise his word, never read it, scoff the prophet, at some point the wrath of God, even in our generation, even this side of the cross, can be aroused against us. Because there comes a point in my life and in yours where God is a perfect, loving, heavenly Father. He knows there's no more remedy. Repeated warnings have proven ineffective, and it's become clear that the best thing that God can do for you is to let you suffer and experience, suffer the consequences of your decision to do what you want, when you want, and no one, including God, is going to change your mind. The book of Revelation says it this way. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. The book of Hebrews says it this way. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So don't miss this. The God who loves you enough and loves me enough to have sent his son to die for you. If he would not spare his son to gain your salvation, do we think for a moment that he will spare our wealth? Do we think for a moment that he would spare our health? Do we think for a moment that he would spare my relationships in order to gain my full attention? See, the awful, wonderful truth is that your God, who invites you to call him Father, is a jealous God. And before we might go, well, you know, that seems like a pretty petty and insecure God. For those of us who you, that are dating or have dated, like if the other guys, you know, what if some other guy or gal began flirting and showing affection to your boyfriend or girlfriend? Or your boyfriend or girlfriend, they begin to show affection and attention to another guy or another gal. Or for those of us that are married, men and ladies, how would you feel if some other man or woman in the workplace or your neighborhood began flirting with them and trying to win their affection? Or how would you feel if your husband or wife began to show attention and affection to another man or another woman? I remember when Shauna and I were engaged and there was a young woman in our college and career group who had decided to not be shy about flirting with me. I don't see what either one of them saw in me, but they did. And I'll never forget the day that my 5'1", buck 5 wife, one morning at church, mind you, 
she walks right up to this girl, puts her finger in the middle of her chest, and with that one finger pushes her back against the wall, steps up to her face and says, you stay away from my fiancé. I thought, this woman has never been more attractive to me than in this moment. I was like, oh my gosh. And honestly, there should be something about us that would find that so attractive about God. That He is so passionate about us and so protective of us. The fact is that there is a a healthy thumbprint of God jealousy that we can all experience when we are in a love relationship. And there comes a point in our life where God has warned us and warned us and warned us and He knows if, if taking away my toys and my stuff and the things that are valuable to me, if that's what it's going to take to get my attention, then He will. I mean, parents, my wife and I, we, we raised four sons and they especially loved their Nintendo and their Xbox. And I loved seeing the joy that they got from, from those. I enjoyed sharing some of that joy. But do you think for a second that as a father that I allowed their games to get away, get in the way of their education or their relationships? Do you think I hesitated for even a moment to pull those things if it got in the way of them respecting their mom or began to interfere with their interaction with the family? Of course not. In fact, if I hadn't, you would consider me what? A bad father. In fact, some of you, you've got friends. You've seen how their children and how their toys and games and devices have become an obstacle to all sorts of things. And you've said to yourself, man, if I were their dad or if I were their mom, like that would come to an end. And parents of teenagers, like, do, do we hesitate for a moment to restrict phone and device privileges if it's getting in the way of their education or their family relationships or their mental and their spiritual health? Of, of course not. Why? Because you're a good parent. So imagine all the things that I consider and that you consider so valuable that you can't live without, that makes life life for you. Like, do we think for a minute that God is a a heavenly Father who loves us perfectly, would even flinch to pull those things if that's what it takes to regain our attention and our affection? Of course not. God allowed people, His people, to be almost obliterated to regain their attention and affection. He allowed the city that David built to be obliterated. There was no thing on this earth that would, he would allow to stand in between him and the people that he loved and those people that called him their God and bore his name. And the uncomfortable truth is that the same is true with me and it's the same with you if you're a Christian. And you might say, like, Chad, I feel like you're trying to scare me. This is like old school, like Southern Baptist, whatever. You know what the prophets were? They were scary. Okay, you, you read the prophets. Like, it was scary what they said and did. And, and it wasn't a threat, again, that God was puni- going to punish to pay back. It was a threat that God is going to discipline to win back. And the only way to avoid God's discipline, the discipline of God, is to surrender to the will of God. And as you read these stories, you see God's grace and mercy throughout the Old Testament, you see where kings and people, they would wait to the very last minute, and all of a sudden, they, okay, God, okay, we surrender. And God would step in, and because he's a good God, he's a good parent, he's loving and patient as a heavenly father. So the application for all of us here today is there comes a time in my life and in your life where from God's vantage point, there is no remedy. 
to where God just simply steps back and He allows events, events to take place. He allows us to suffer. He allows us to suffer loss, to experience something unimaginable because God knows this is what it's going to take to bring us to a point of brokenness to where we finally say, no longer my will be done, but thy will be done. When I was early in, 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 in Bible college, uh, for a little while I picked up a job at a, at, a clothing, at a men's clothing store and there was a guy that I worked with he, he was just a, a guy, he was just hostile towards Christianity. I never fully understood it. I didn't know his whole story, but, you know, here I was. Like, I was so excited about my new faith. I'm in Bible college preparing for ministry, and he just would always have these digs and whatever, and it didn't matter what I said. He was going to make fun of it, and still, you know, we worked together, and I was never a jerk to him. And then uh, after a few months, then I got in working with, uh, in group homes and with those who had been abused or neglected and completely changed directions there. But then, like, a couple years later, Sean and I were at the church that we were plugged into, and it was in between, like, services, and I look, and I, to the crowd, I see, like, his face in the crowd, and, like, I, I was shocked. Like, wow. Like, so I had to go find out what was going on, so I'm kind of working my way through the crowd, and he's made eye contact with me, gets a big old smile on his face, and I get through kind of where I can see him, and he's standing there on crutches, and he's missing a leg. And so, you know, I go up, and I go, man, it's been so long since I, I saw you. I mean, this is, man, what happened? He's like, I was, I was in a really bad car wreck, and it almost killed me. And he said, but, you know, it didn't take me, it took my leg. And he started joking about it. I'm like, so what? <laughs> like, like, you're here. He goes, oh, man, he says, my life is completely different. He said, I'm just so angry and hostile towards God and the way I treated you and this is just what it took for me to wake up. And man, he just had this amazing story and testimony and this passion for God and his new faith. And the good news is, God is a covenant-keeping God who never bails on his promises. And no matter how far we drift or how hostile we've been towards God, rebellious, if you place your faith in Christ as your Savior, you're in, you're in forever, but you're also his child. And because he is a good father God, he must discipline his children when we're disobedient. So before I close today, I just want to, I just like to step in and just be a prophet in your life. And I just like to plead for you, for your sake, for your children's sake, your grandchildren's sake, your family's sake, your future family's sake, to repent. And whatever it is that God has been knocking on the door of your heart, saying, come on, we've we got to deal with this. We've got to deal with this. And up till now, maybe you've been doing the same thing Zedekiah did with Jeremiah. Like, like listen, this just, just get that guy out of here. I don't want to hear anymore. I don't want to listen to that. I'm not going to listen to that. Honey, we're not going to talk about this anymore. What is the thing? What is the thing that maybe God has led significant people in your life and voices from the outside, voices from the inside, saying, hey, you've got to deal with this. You've got to deal with this. You've got to get out of that. You've got to come clean. You've got to come clean with your husband. You've got to come clean with your wife. You need to end that misguided relationship. You need to get out of that partnership. It's time you buckled down and faced the debt that you've gotten yourself into it's time for you to deal with the ethics in your workplace. I know, and you know. And I've warned, and I've warned, I've warned, and God's saying, listen, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you're, you're headed towards a line that you cannot see. Coming to a place where there is no remedy except for me to take a step back and to let you suffer the consequences of your decision. 
And you might say, you know, Chad, are you telling me that fear is reason enough to come back to God? You bet I am. <laughs> well, I don't think I should just repent because I'm scared. I think you should. In fact, if you got just a 30-second glimpse today of what your future might look like in three years, if you don't repent, that fear would drive you to God. Most of us became Christians because we were afraid. Like, I don't know if I love God and love Jesus, but I don't want to go to hell. So if, like, you know, Jesus being my Savior keeps me out of hell, like, I'm all for that. Sure, fear is an adequate motivation. It's not a good long-term motivation. But that's why God sent the prophets to scare the you-know-what out of these kings, saying you've got to turn back because if you knew what lies ahead, you would turn around, you would repent. See, if you're a father here this morning, if God has to start messing with you and what's valuable to you, the tragedy is this. That will affect your wife and children. Just as Zedekiah affected his wife and children and affected an entire kingdom. If you're a mom, it will affect your children. If you're a business leader, you're some leader in some other aspect, it will affect everything and everyone under your authority and your influence. So not just for your sake, but for the sake of all of those lives that you influence somehow. Repent. Come back to God. The clock is ticking. And just like a good parent does not ignore the rebellion of their children because they know down the road it will cause them far greater pain, he loves you too much to ignore your rebellion and mine in order to bring you back to a place of surrender and intimacy. That's the wonderful, terrible truth of Scripture. And many of us could stand up and say, fat, <laughs> because I've been there, I experienced it, I'm back, I don't ever want to go through that again. So here's how I'd like for us to close the service. I wanna, I've asked the band to close this service with a, a powerful song. There's going to be a lead into it, and then the, the songs come to the altar. I'm going to ask that while this song is being sung, and as you hear these words, and the words are on the screen, if you're here today and you know deep down, in some area, you're like King Zedekiah, that there's an area in my life, or maybe in my whole life, that I've been holding out on, on God and I've been arguing and rationalizing, thinking that somehow I'm going to get away with this or maybe the truth is God has put some Jeremiah's in, in your life, people in your life who've been trying to warn you and wave you off and get you to stop or get you to start and, and you'd say, you know what, I've just been patronizing them at best and blowing them off at worst. I've been trying to get them to shut up and trying to leave me alone. But today, the idea of what could happen if God gets to the point where he has to say, I love you, enough's enough. That scares me to death. And I know he's been trying to get my attention, but since nothing bad has happened, I just figure he's unaware, or honestly, it's not that big of a deal to him, but honestly, I know deep down he cares. And I don't want to have to wait until it's all taken away. I don't want to have to wait until I get to the point of no return. And if that's you, and you're willing to say, God, I surrender. I surrender that habit. I surrender that relationship. I surrender that reputation. I surrender this thing that I've been keeping a secret. I surrender those plans. Whatever it is that you know God is trying to get your attention, that just during this song, I would ask you to just do something that we do once in a while. I'm just going to ask you to just stand up as a public demonstration. 
I don't even care what other people think. God, you know what's going on. And I know what it is. So I surrender. I repent. I'm back. Not my will, but your will. And if you say, why do I have to stand? You don't. But here's the deal. If you're not willing to go public with strangers and friends, all of whom care about you, the odds of you going home and following through is slim to none. Because the emotion of this moment will pass. But the truth about God and His love for you and His desire will not pass. And besides, isn't it true that your greatest regret in your life wouldn't exist if you had done something like this? And so, I'm going to sit down. And then the band's going to start. We're going to start with lead-in to the, the main song, but Whenever you're ready, just do what God would have you do. But don't wait too long because after we get a little into the song, we're going to have everybody stand so that if anybody's standing, nobody's standing alone. For what it's worth, um, I'll be the first one to stand. So you won't be standing alone. So let me pray for us. God, you're so... You're just so amazing with us and so far more patient than we realize. God, you're just such a patient, loving Father as we stumble again and again and again. And, and Father, you just get us back up and you work to just keep us moving forward. And as uncomfortable it is, I thank you that you're also a Father that if we get super stubborn, you'll, you'll do what it takes to help us break that stubbornness because in the end, you want life that's truly life for us for the people that we love the most and the people around us and what you want to reveal about yourself and about your son to this world. So Father, I pray for everyone, whatever it takes, including me, which is a little terrifying to ask, but that you would do what it takes to line us up into your will because again, you always want our best and you have the best in mind for us and you are trustworthy. And for those that might be listening to me, that they're going through a season of discipline, Father, I pray that you would show up, that you would reaffirm your love and your grace, and that you would walk alongside them to help make the changes that they don't find themselves in the same circumstances that they're in now. We're just so thankful that your grace and your love is that deep and reliable. Thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.